the more unusual passages, or one of the more difficult passages to understand in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 11. And it's a passage that talks about women wearing head coverings or Paul giving instruction to the Corinthian women that when they come to church and pray and prophesy, they need to wear a head covering. And it's an unusual one for us to try to figure out because it's it's a culture that we're maybe not familiar with and it's certainly an ancient culture that we just don't quite fully understand. But it's also a difficult passage because it raises then questions for today, specifically do women still need to wear head coverings when they pray and prophesy? So this is one of those passages that I sometimes get asked about to try to give some better explanation of what does this actually mean? Uh, are we disobeying the, the Bible if, if a woman is not praying and prophesying with her head covering? What does it mean? What do we actually do with this today? And so what I wanted to do in this episode is to look a bit more deeply into 1 Corinthians 11, and specifically chapters chapter 11, 2 to 17, and try to unpack from the culture of the first century what might have been going on and hopefully draw out some implications for what it means for us today. So without any further ado, why don't we just sort of dive straight into the text. So Paul begins in verse 3, and he, he says to the church, he says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ." and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, right from the word go, we've got some difficult questions here to have to answer. He says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. Well, does that not mean that Christ is the head of a woman? Is Christ only the head of men? What about the women? Is Surely he's the head of all of us. And so already there, we've got a bit of a question we have to answer. Then he says, and the head of the woman is man. Well, does that mean that all men are head over all women? Is it that a husband is the head over a wife? Is it that he's the head over which men are we talking about? Which women are we talking about here? Who's the head over who exactly? And then it says, and the head of Christ is God. You go, but hang on a second. I thought Christ wasn't subordinate to God. I thought Christ was part of the Godhead. So are you saying to me now that Christ is inferior to God, that somehow God is his head in that particular way? And so right from the word go, I say we've got some pretty difficult questions that we have to answer. There's some controversial issues that are going on here. And so the way that the only way we can really answer this is to go a little bit deeper into the original language. And so we're just going to sort of pick out a couple of the key Greek words here and just see what is is happening. So he says, but I want you to realize that the head, now the word head here is the word kephale. And we'll come to the definitions of that in a moment. But he says, but I want you to realize that the head, the kephale of every man. So the man word man here is the Greek word anaya. So the head of every man, anaya, is Christ. And the head, kephale, of the woman, the word for woman here is the word gine. So the head of a woman, gine, is a man, anaya. And the head, kephale, of Christ is God. So these three terms we've got here, kephale, anaya, and gine. What do these words mean? Well, kephale literally translates as a head. But like the English word head, it can take uh, different meanings. So for example, it could refer to your physical head, the head that you have on the top of your shoulders. Uh, but like the English word, it could also talk about a source or origin. For example, the head of a stream that feeds water 
down further into the stream. Uh, another meaning for it, it could be authority. So the head of an organization, the head of an army. So in the same, in terms of a boss, somebody who is overseeing a group or, or certain people. And it can also mean preeminent, just in the sense of in the sense of hierarchy, just somebody who sits higher. So there's these different nuances that this word can take. And as we're going to see throughout this passage, it sort of wavers, it jumps between its its various meanings. And now it's the same word in the Greek, but we have to interpret that to understand what it is that we mean by in this mean by it in this particular passage. The second word is this word anaea, which we translate as a man. Now, a man in Greek, or anaea in Greek, can also mean a husband. It's a little bit like the German der Mann. It can mean a man as a generic man, uh, or it could also mean a husband. And then in the same way, this Greek word gine can mean a woman or a wife. Again, use German as an example, like die Frau. So it could mean a wife, it could also mean a generic woman. And so already what we see here is some nuances within these terms. And the question we have to ask ourselves is which one is being used in this particular passage? Well, that's a question for interpretation. That's something we're going to have to sort of try to take a guess at based on our best evidence of of what it could mean in this particular text. So if we were to try to apply it back to our verse 3, what could we possibly interpret from this? Well, this would be my reading from it. And already we can see that we're dealing with something that is, uh, it depends on what the interpreter is trying to interpret out of it, how, how they want to read these particular terms and interpret them in the text. But this would be my take on how we understand this verse 3. So verse 3 would say something like, but I want you to understand that preeminent over every male is Christ. And so every man in general, not over every husband specifically, but over men as a category. Now, does that negate women? Does that preclude them from being submissive to Christ or Christ to be head over men or or, or women? Well, no, we're going to see later on that the context gives some more clarity to what Paul's saying here. But over every male, every generic man is Christ. And then preeminent over every wife is the husband. Now, it would be very difficult and almost impossible for us to say that uh, what Paul's implying that every single man is head over every single woman. That's just not reality in any society. What he would be talking about here and what the context later on would make sense to us is that Paul's saying that over every specific wife is the husband. Now, again, already that's raising hackles. That's already, well, hang on, what are you sort of saying here? Well, let's see what the rest of the passage says and let's bring a bit more context to it. And then finally, he says, in the same way that preeminent over the incarnated Christ. Now that, I would interpret the Christ there as incarnated, not as in Christ, as in of the Godhead, as in Christ who is with the Father, but the incarnated Christ, the Christ who was on earth, who submitted himself to God. That's what he would be talking about here because what Christ gave us as an example when he came was an example of what it looks like to be in submission to God, to be obedient to the will of God. That's what he came to demonstrate to us. And so what Paul's doing here is to use Christ's example on earth 
as an example of what it should look like in our relationships with God, but also in our relationships with one another. So that's this initial statement. Now, again, it's problematic for us already, particularly this idea of wives being submissive to their husbands. We have to keep in mind that when we talk about the first century, we're talking about a culture that at every level and in every way functioned with a sense of hierarchy. Everybody had a place in society and everybody had somebody above them. Even if you were a man, you would have patrons who would be over you. At the very highest, you would have the emperor who would be superior to you. Everybody was submissive to somebody. And this held true in marriage. It was just default. It was just assumed within that culture that wives were submissive to their husbands. That is just how the world worked. And so what Paul is reinforcing here is something of the status quo. He's saying this is just how the world works. Now, before we before you leave the podcast, before you, you know, switch off this episode, let me sort of preempt that as we go further into the passage, we actually see Paul reverse this. We actually see Paul, you know, invert this uh, idea within the Christian context. What he's doing at the moment is just setting a standard for these Corinthians based on what is culturally expected from them. So he moves on, verse 4. He says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So, okay, here we've got these terms again. Every man. Well, we've established that the man here is not the husband specifically, but the man in general. So he said that the men are to be in submission to Christ And so, therefore, the men here who pray and prophesy need to do it in such a way that brings honor to his head, which in this case is Christ. So, Paul says, every man, Anaya, who prays and prophesies with his head covered. Well, clearly that's talking about the physical head. It's not that he's trying to cover over Christ when he prays and prophesies. I don't even know how he would do that. So, the man, in this case, praying and prophesying with his physical head covered dishonors his metaphorical head, his head to whom he's in submission, which in this case, as we have noted, already is Christ. And so the man is praying and prophesying, or the men are praying and prophesying in Corinth, and they're doing it in a way that dishonors Christ. So what does that mean? How is it that by covering their heads, they're dishonoring Christ? Well, when we look at first century culture, and if you're interested, I've actually got a YouTube video on this where you can go and watch in Corinth what this might have looked like to these men. One of the things that the priests of Roman religions would do is that when they came to offer a sacrifice, they would cover their heads. Now, the thing about being a priest in ancient religion is that you had to be rich to be able to do it. It wasn't something that was available to everybody that just wanted to do the job. It's something you actually had to bid for. You almost had to, you had to be elected into that position. Now, in order to be elected into the position, you needed to be able to offer the community something of a, well, if you, if you elect me, this is what I'll do for this particular cult. If you elect me as the high priest of Zeus in this particular city, then I will build an extension on the temple or I'll, I'll fund the festivals or I'll do something that is going to be of benefit to this particular cult. And so having been elected, he would then 
do that for a year. He would be the high priest of that particular cult for the next 12 months. And with that, he would gain the honor and the fame of having held that important role. So to do that then, you needed to be rich. That was just prerequisite for holding any sort of offices within the ancient world. So we're dealing with men who are wealthy in these roles. Well, one of their roles as the priest was to offer the sacrifice. Now, the thing about Roman religion was that it was quite paranoid. The belief was that if there's a bad omen when you bring the sacrifice, then that's going to contaminate the offering. The, the, the God is not happy with the offering, and that's a, is that going to have the reverse effect? The offering is meant to appease the God. It's meant to bring about the God's favor. But if the God is unhappy when you bring the offering, if there's some sort of bad omen and you, uh, you curse the omen, for want of a better term, that's going to end bad for you. And so what, the way around this was that the priests, when they came to bring the offering, would have put a covering over their heads. And really importantly, what the covering would do, would it would cover their peripheral vision. In the same way you might put blinders on a horse, it would cover their peripheral vision and ideally block out some of their, their, their hearing. Now, the idea of this is that if you don't see it and you don't hear it, it didn't happen. So there might be a bad omen, but we didn't see it, we didn't hear it, everything's okay, we can proceed with the offering. But that was the idea. You put a head covering on when you come to pray and prophesy. And so presumably what these Corinthian men are doing is that when they come into pray and prophesy, they're doing the same thing. They're putting a covering over their head in the same way that a Roman priest might. But what that's actually doing is reinforcing to the other men in the Corinthian church that, hey, I'm superior to you. Don't forget my place here. And we know that this is a problem in Corinthians. The, 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 the gap between the haves and the have-nots has been played out at every level of the worship service, particularly at the communion table, where the wealthy ones are getting, uh, eating lots of food and getting drunk, while the poor ones are eating nothing, starving, and just looking around going, well, this isn't very fair. So that sort of a, seems to be the standard behavior that's going on in the Christian service in Corinth, and particularly here at a time of prayer and prophecy where it should be a time of equality, it should be a time of mutual edification. Well, you've got these men who are saying, hey, you know what? Don't forget, I'm superior to you. Well, Paul just, not gently, but very bluntly reminds them, hey, when you do that, you're dishonoring your head, who in this case is Christ, who died so that you could be one body. You're now dividing that body along social status lines that are not relevant here in this Christian community. So in other words, stop doing that. It's, it's not good. That's, that's not what we're here to do. But then he addresses the women. He says this, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. So again, we have this issue of who are the women that he's talking about? Well, I'm reading the NIV here, and that just simply translates this as a woman. He says, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. 
Well, we've established in verse 3 that the head of the woman is the man, but specifically it's the head of the wife is the husband. And so that would logically carry on here to verse 5, where every wife who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered, her physical head, kephale, uncovered, dishonors her metaphorical head, kephale, who in this case would be her husband. He says it's the same as having her head, her kephale, shaved. And so you see, switching between the implications of the word head here, and, and we would Probably in English do the same thing. If we were using the word head in both cases, we would. it's the same word, but the listener would know the, through the context which head we're actually referring to. And so what's going on here? Well, you've got these women who are uncovering their heads when they come to pray and prophesy. Well, who's he talking about? Well, he seems to be talking about the wives. And the thing to bear in mind is that up until only maybe a very short time ago, um, women were married at a young age. Women were typically married as teenagers. And so most of the women who are out in public are going to be wives anyway, unless they're really young girls. Because generally by the time a woman becomes a teenager, she's ready to be married. And generally she's going to be married as a result. So maybe 13, 14, 15 years old. So the women in the Corinthian church are uncovering their heads. Now, first question is, why do they need to cover their heads in the first place? Well, simply, it's a sign to show you're married. Women would wear their head coverings to say, when they're out in public, to say to everybody else, I'm married, I'm taken, I've got a husband. And secondly, it was a sign of modesty. And it's still true in cultures today. The women would wear a head covering out in public as a sign to say, you know, I'm under someone's authority. That's just the way things are. So this is true for Roman culture, and this is the expectation that would have been on the Corinthian women. I'll give you a couple of readings here just to sort of support this. This is from Plutarch, who was a first century philosopher. He says, when someone inquired why they took their girls into public places unveiled, but their married women veiled, he said, because the girls have to find husbands and the married women have to keep those who have them. So in other words, We take the married women out and we cover their heads because we don't want people to think that they're free and, you know, maybe can be taken from their husbands. But at the same time, the girls who aren't married, we take them out unveiled to tell everybody, to make it very clear that this girl is unmarried and potentially available to be a wife. Here's another example, and this is from uh, a wedding. This is sort of a wedding vow, a wedding sort of ceremony procedure that we find in Rome. This is from Tacitus, the the Roman historian. He says, on a specified day with witnesses to seal the contract, a consul designate and the emperor's wife should have met for the avowed purposes of legitimate marriage, that the woman should have listened to the words of the auspices, have assumed the veil, so in other words, put the head covering on, have sacrificed in the face of heaven, that both should have dined with the guests, have kissed and embraced, and finally have spent the night in the license of wedlock. And so what he's describing here is the process of actually getting married. And what we notice there, again, is that the women put on the head cover and the wife puts on a veil to indicate that from now on she's married to this particular man. Here's another example from uh, from Dio Chrysostom, and he's talking about this idea of shaving heads. It says, A woman guilty of adultery shall have her hair cut off and be a harlot, 
her daughter become an adulteress and her hair cut off according to the law and practiced harlotry. And so in other words, the idea of a woman who goes out in public with her head uncovered, it's, it's, it's a disgrace. It's, it's a shame. It's a shameful act to do. And the expectation in this very patriarchal society would be that she would be treated appropriately as somebody who is a loose woman with loose morals. And so what he's saying here is that she needs to have her head shaved. And so what Paul's doing here in Corinthians is sort of picking up on these cultural cues to say that this is just what's expected of you within the culture. And importantly, what you need to bear in mind talking to the Corinthians is that you're on display. These are public meetings. Anybody could be coming in. And if somebody was to come in and see you guys acting in a way contrary to very important cultural values, this is going to be a problem for us. It's not just that it's a bad witness, but it actually creates suspicion about the sort of people that we are. Certainly unnecessary suspicion uh, and, and attention that we really don't need. So returning then to our passage, with this in mind, perhaps the best way to translate it might be something like this. He says, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her physical head uncovered dishonors her spiritual head, that is her husband. It's the same as having her physical head shaved. For if a wife does not cover her physical head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman, a general woman, to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her physical head. And so in other words, he's just, again, just reinforcing the status quo. There are things that we just don't want to draw negative attention for, And this is one of them. Now then, the question might be, why are these women taking off their head coverings? Are they being intentionally rebellious? Are they they just intentionally flaunting themselves and just trying to be seductive? Or is it perhaps that they're at home? See, what we have to remember is that Paul's church is met in people's houses, very likely the houses that these women lived in, the, in their own houses. And so it would be very easy for us to imagine that these women who are in their own homes, behind closed doors, in this meeting with maybe some other close friends and family, are taking off their head coverings. And what Paul, again, wants to remind them of, and he talks about this in Corinthians 14, is that, well, yeah, look, yes, but strangers are coming in. People are coming in, inquirers might come in for good motives, but also maybe for bad motives. And so we just don't know. We just have to be careful about this. And so in the context of this public meeting for the, just whilst we're having this time together in this public space, perhaps just treat it like you're out in public, perhaps just treat it like you're out in the forum, rather than just feel comfortable as you maybe should, but just while you're behind closed doors, just don't think that this is a a normal family gathering. And so I think it's as simple as that. I really think it's just as as basic as that. I, I really don't think these women are out there trying to cause trouble for anybody. It's just that they're doing what they would normally do at home behind closed doors, which is to take off their head coverings because they're no longer out in public. And so then he goes on and the verse gets even, the passage gets even more difficult seemingly for what Paul's saying. He says in verse seven, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, 
but woman for a man, neither was man created for woman for a woman, but a woman for a man. Now this is at first reading, it's just surface level reading, very problematic. Um, so a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God. So, okay, fair enough. Men are the image and glory of God. We can agree with that. But hang on, what about the women? It seems to suggest here that the woman's only glory comes from a man. Now, again, is this all men are the uh, sorry? All women are only the glory of all men, or is it talking about husbands and wives? Well, very likely husbands and wives, but it's still a problem. Surely, a woman too, being created by God, is also the the glory of God. But in the context of this particular situation. Paul's got something more precise in mind. Now, the question then is, what does he mean by glory in that case? If a, if a man is the glory of God and a wife is the glory of a husband, what exactly are you talking about here? Well, the word he uses here, the word glory, is the word doxa. So think about the word doxology. It's where we get that from. The word doxa it has a couple of meanings. It's a, it can mean a state of being magnificent, greatness, splendor, so the glory that emanates from an angelic being. That's the, the, the halo or the light that maybe comes out of these, these beings. That's glory. That's, that's the doxa. But more culturally, more you know, grounded in just the everyday reality, it's also honor. Uh, the honor as enhancement or, or recognition of status or performance, fame, recognition, renown, honor, prestige. And so doxa, glory in this case, is the honor that comes from perhaps doing something great. So think about the honor of you know, winning a World Cup or winning a gold medal, the honor that comes with that, the glory, the esteem, the fame that comes along with that. It's the same sort of thing. So in a culture where uh, it's, uh, the whole world is geared towards gaining honour to climb, the, uh, climb the, the ranks of society, climb the ranks of, of, of relationships in this honour-shame society, honour or doxa is everything. To receive honour, to give honour, this is, this is currency. This is what makes this world go around. And so what he's saying here is he's saying that the man these generic Corinthian men, don't forget you're the image and glory of God. You reflect God. And so the way you act is a reflection on the character of God, which is true for all Christians. That's true for the men as much as for the women. But in this particular case, he's saying to the men, don't forget that your behavior is an immediate reflection on your head, who is God, who is Christ. But the Wife, the women, are the glory of the man, of the husband. Again, in a society where honor is essential for the husband, for the head of the house, how his family behaves, how his family acts is a reflection of him. It's a reflection of his character, of, his, of the sort of husband and the sort of father that he is. And so if the children are running wild and they're, do, they're being terrible, well, that's a that's a dishonor to him. That looks bad on him. And in an honor-shame society like the first century, that is absolutely horrific. That's the worst possible thing that can happen. And so what Paul's saying here is that the you wives, you reflect your husband. 
in, in a culture that is all about status, that's all about appearances, well, you're giving a bad appearance. You're making it look bad. You're making your husband look bad, which is making us look bad. So again, just in these public settings, just chill out. Just just pull back a little bit. Just you just be be more considerate of the way in which you're reflecting your husband. Now we can say, oh, hang on. What about the husbands? Shouldn't the husbands act in a way that honors the wife? Well, of course, absolutely. This is reciprocal. But in this particular situation here in Corinth, there's one. There's an instance that Paul is trying to deal with, and it happens to be the way that the the wives are acting in a way that is reflecting of their husbands. But then he goes on in verse eight. He says, "For man did not come from woman, but woman from man." Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so he seems to be restating the creation account, certainly um, uh, sort of post, uh, sort of a post-fall creation account, which reinforces this idea that a woman is subordinate to a man. Now, again, hang with me here because what Paul's about to do in a couple of verses is flip all of this on his head, on its head. The immediate concern that Paul has at this point of the verse is to say, look, these are public meetings. This is a very uh, gossipy society. This is a society that is absolutely concerned with appearances. And what we don't want to do is give a wrong appearance. We don't want to give the appearance of being a community that undermines important cultural values. We just we don't need that negative attention. That creates for us a bad witness. And so in this situation, just remember the expectation of a wife to be submissive to a husband, to be honoring to him, and to they just act in such a way that doesn't raise any unnecessary negative attention. And then he throws in this really bizarre verse. Verse 10, it says, and this is, again, the NIV. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now you go, what on earth is going on here? What, what is he even talking about? Well, I'll read the Greek, the literal Greek, just to show you how bizarre this verse is and then try to make some sort of sense of it, which we probably won't, but <laughs> let's see what we can come up with. The Greek literally says... Because of this, she ought, the woman, authority to have over the head because of the angels. Now, if you can make sense of that, fantastic. Then it's just such a bizarre statement that he's making. And what it's led to is a whole range of different interpretations in your different Bibles. So, for example, the ESV says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And you go, where did the symbol come from? Well, they've put that in there because the Greek doesn't specify. All it says is in the Greek is she ought to, the woman, authority to have over the head. What is the authority that she's talking about? He's talking about here. Well, the ESV interprets that as a symbol of authority. That is the head covering on her head because of the angels. The RSV says that is why a woman ought to have a veil on her head. Now, where did the veil come from? 
what it's 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 even taken the authority out. It's taken the word authority right out of the translation, and it's just swapped it in with a veil. It's just assumed Paul's talking about the veil, so we're just going to put that straight into the English, and that's what it's talking about because of the angels. The NIV says it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. You go, but hang on, the, her her own isn't in there. All it says is. In the Greek, a woman ought to have authority to have over the head because of the angels. That's it. So what the NIV is doing with this is to say she's got authority over her own head to do with as she pleases. Well, what has that got to do with the veil? Well, that's an entirely different thing. And so the amount of confusion that this is causing at least should give us some pause as to what we might do with this verse in terms of how we apply it, how we live it out in our everyday context. And the question then obviously is which one of these translations is right? Well, I don't know. Um, And I don't think anyone really does know because otherwise we wouldn't have such a divergence in translations. My guess would be that given everything Paul has just said, if if a a woman is to... um, act in such a way that doesn't bring negative attention, it would lean towards the idea that she should wear a symbol of authority on her head, as the ESV translates. Now, it could still be that Paul's saying she should have authority over her own head, but the simplest reading would seem to suggest that she should just wear this symbol of authority which indicates to others that she is her husband's, that she belongs to his family. That would seem to be the most straightforward solution. But then he goes on and he says, because of the angels, you know, what is that all about? What are you, which angels are we talking about? And again, read different commentaries, you'll get different interpretations of what these angels might be. One suggestion might be that it's heavenly beings lusting after uncovered women, kind of like the angels in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, these ones that just have this desire for earthly women. It could be them that are in the room looking at these women with their heads uncovered and they're kind of getting distracted from their job as angels because they've got these half-naked, well, say half-naked women who've got their head coverings off in the room. Could be that. Um, it says maybe it could be in the same way that, women, that the angels subordinate themselves in worship, so women should also subordinate themselves in worship. Could be that. Um, it could be out of respect to the angels who patrol creation maintain, to maintain its order. It could be that just that angels are getting distracted in their worship because of these women who are uncovered in their heads. I mean, there's all of these options are made available. Uh, one that I like um, and seems to be maybe perhaps more grounded in the immediate context of Corinth is this play on the word angel. So the word angel is the word angelos. Now, the word angelos simply means a messenger. So when the Bible talks about angels, it usually implies the idea of a heavenly being. But the word itself was very generic. It just meant a messenger, somebody who brings a message. Now, for the Christians, it would have a particular meaning. It would have this idea of these angelic beings, these heavenly beings. But for an outsider listening they'd still recognize the word, but recognize it more in the terms of just a human messenger. And so it could be that Paul's playing on this. It could be that Paul's perhaps speaking in a way that is, to an outsider, all they would hear is human messenger, 
But to the Christians, it's almost a, a wink, wink. You know what we're really talking about here. These, these, um, you, you think it's, it sort of sounds like this idea of these angelic beings, but we've kind of got this other meaning in mind here. What we know, well, what we sort of discovered about um, first century Rome is that one of the, well, in the Rome, the Roman world didn't have a police force. There was no police monitor, going around the streets monitoring the legal system and making sure people aren't committing crimes. That's just not something you have in the ancient world. But one of the things that they did have in the late Republic and into the early Empire was this civic role known as the controller of women, gynaikonomos. And so the job of these men was to literally go around and to make sure that the women were dressing appropriately, that they were acting appropriately. And they had the they had uh, authority to arrest women, to publicly shame them, to to make it very clear to everybody else that this woman is acting in an inappropriate way. So maybe that's what Paul has in mind, something like that. Messengers, angels, wink, wink, we know what we're really talking about here. They might hear angelic beings, but what we're really talking about are these messengers coming in to find out what it is that we're doing, who may be going and reporting back to the authorities. Now, again, we don't know. It's just one of these very bizarre versus one of these strange things, and perhaps it's obscure specifically because Paul wants it to be obscure. Maybe he wants to make it sound like he's referring to one thing, but to his audience who knows what he's talking about, maybe to hear what he really means. It's a very unusual thing. Now, if you're feeling a bit disillusioned, if you're feeling a little bit confused about the whole thing, well, Paul's here for you. So as we switch to verse 11... All that we have just said, in many ways, gets turned, gets turned on its head. What Paul's talked about to this point, as we've said, is more of the cultural expectation around the behavior that these Christians should demonstrate uh, as a way of their showing that they're not disrespecters of the law, they're not disrespecters of the culture. But then he says here in verse 11, and this is the key verse that we need to hone in on. He says in verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. So all of that hierarchy, all of that structure that we've just talked about, the status quo that we've talked about, don't forget that in the Lord, here in the church, here within the Christian community, it's different. The way that we relate to one another is egalitarian. It's not reinforcing the social status. It's not reinforcing the status quo to say that, well, if the world does it, that's how we have to do it. No, no, what we do is something different. And in this world, woman is not independent of man or a wife is not independent of a husband, nor is a husband independent of the wife. There's a teamwork thing happening. There's an, there's an equality that is happening here in the Christian community. So a moment ago, Paul says, hey, you know, women came from the men. And so therefore she should be subordinate to the man or to the husband. Look what he does here in verse 12. For as a woman came from a man, so also a man is born of a woman. So if you're going to use the Genesis account to say that women have to be subordinate to the man because she Eve, Eve came out of Adam, well, Cain and Abel came out of her. And so the whole cycle continues. 
And so that's not an argument to say we have to, that women have to be subordinate because of the Genesis account, because Paul just says, hey, but what about the next generation that came? What, that just turned all of that on its head. And he says, but it's not even about that. He goes on and he says, but everything comes from God. So it's not that it's just the husbands who are the glory of God. It's the wives who are also the glory of God. All of what I've just said above is just within the social, within the, 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 uh, within the status quo. But in the Lord, it's a different picture. Within the Lord, everything is equal. Everything is egalitarian. So finally, he goes on in verse 13. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things, literally common sense, teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. Now, it's such a strange twist at the end of, what are we, hang on a second, is, are you saying that she can take a head covering off because she's got long hair and that's given to her as a covering? Perhaps, but let's not forget the status quo. Let's not forget the public perception that we're giving out here. But what's really important about this passage is that it says, you guys figure it out for yourselves. You judge for yourselves here. You don't need my counsel here. Figure it out for yourselves. Use some common sense. What does common sense tell you? Now, when we, this, the, the nature of things that Paul talks about here, this idea of common sense, this sort of uh, just what is the world around? What What is just sort of normal within the society? Well, one of the things that it teaches us is that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. Uh, well, that's, that's a bit strange. Like, you know, it's it's the only way that a man has long, long hair is if he lets it grow, but it's a disgrace to him. What is that talking about? Well, in first century Roman culture, men were expected to have short hair. That was just what was culturally expected. If you've got long hair you're seen as a woman. You're seen as being effeminate. Again, check out the YouTube video where we sort of look at some examples of men with long hair and you look at the Roman men and the expectation around Roman men in the first century. He says, look, you know, men have short hair. If he has long hair, it's a disgrace. Culturally, he'll be seen to be as a woman. Whereas on the other hand, if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. And you go, but hang on a second. It's God didn't give her long hair. She just didn't cut it. It just grew long. And that was what gives her glory. Well, culturally, that's just what makes her effeminate. That's just what makes her womanly. Again, it's just a cultural idea. It's just a, well, this is just what's expected in the culture. And, you know, if you want to just use that as your starting point, well, what does that tell you about things? But again, it's very strange. It's really Paul just putting the, the decision back on them and saying, you guys, again, you, you can judge this for yourselves. You can figure it out. But perhaps more importantly for us is the final verse where he says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And this is kind of the, well, this just shuts down the debate. If you want to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul's saying, this is a you problem. This is a Corinthian problem. You've got enough common sense. You've got enough cultural input. You've got enough wisdom to be able to figure out what the best solution for this is. And the reality is, unfortunately, you're the only ones that have this problem. Nobody else does. The other churches, they're not even talking about this. 
And it's an interesting one because if this was so important to Paul, and I guess this is where we bring it back to ourselves, if Paul was wanting this to be a practice for all times and all places, that every Christian woman in all times and in all places needed to wear a head covering in order to pray and prophesy, then you would imagine that he'd talk about it a lot more. You'd imagine that all of his letters would be saying something like, hey, don't forget you women, don't don't forget to cover your heads. But he doesn't do that. This is the only time that he talks about it, and he talks about it in such an obscure way that it's really not quite clear what's going on. But what we do see here at the end is that really this is just a problem that those guys had. It was a problem for the first century. It was a problem for Corinth. And so if there is one key takeaway, well, it would be firstly, you don't have to wear head coverings today in order to pray and prophesy. And I think that's demonstrated by the fact that it just doesn't happen really anywhere. But if there was a principle to take away from this, then what we find, what Paul wants throughout this whole passage is for his, for the churches to act in a way that is honorable, that is a good witness, that doesn't flout cultural values unnecessarily, to doesn't act in a way that unnecessarily gives the church a bad reputation, but also for Christians to act in a way that brings honor to those around them, to those in authority, to those that they're to their spouses, to their family. Just act in such a way that builds the body up. Act in such a way that is honorable to those within the community. Because really that's the key point. And that's really where the Corinthians have gone completely wrong in this whole situation. And that particularly plays out in the next section of chapter 11, where he talks about the communion table and just the way that that has been abused. Well, anyway, I hope that's been helpful. That's something of my own reading for this. And there's plenty of other commentaries and plenty of other resources you can you can read up on this. Um Well, maybe we'll just leave it at that. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you listening and uh, I'll see you next week. All the best.